How can you teach your students to deceive others? Yes. Isn't that wrong? Isn't that unethical? And I'm so glad that we have this conversation because not talking about it, not teaching it is far worse because our adversaries are already doing it. And baked into that is ethics. Knowing that what you're learning should be used for good. Hi, I'm your host, Jen Langdon, and welcome to Cyber Chats, a show focused on educating people of all ages about personal data care, as well as cyber career skills and pathways. Together, we'll demystify the world of cyber. Happy Cybersecurity Awareness Month! Cybercrime can seem like something that only the most technically advanced people could pull off. But with the recent MGM hack, attackers basically had the door held open for them. They logged in with valid credentials they engineered someone to give them, stole company data, and then demanded payment. In this episode, we'll learn how to protect ourselves and our information by learning how humans are vulnerable tech. You won't want to miss this. Hi, everyone. My name is Anshul Brege. I'm an associate professor at Temple University um, with the College of Liberal Arts. And I also direct the Cybersecurity and Application Research and Education, or CARE Lab. Here at Temple University, I host and uh, run and design our summer cybersecurity competitions that specialize in social engineering. And I'm also the research lead with the social engineering community at DEF CON. Awesome. Are you ready to dive into our fast five questions? Absolutely. Let's do this. All right, let's go. Number one, what open source tool or free application have you found valuable? I'm going to say for social engineering, the best one out there is Google. So Google Maps, Google Dorks. Awesome. Um, Number two, on a friend or family member's device, what setting would you make sure is turned on or off? Uh, Definitely turn off location access. So when you're posting, taking photos, all of that kind of good stuff, just turn it off. Perfect. Uh, One thing you wish you knew before you started in in your career field. Yeah, that cybersecurity is so much more than just coding, right? Or um, operating systems or databases. So um, that there's a whole other side of it outside of computer science. I'm still trying to make that message clear. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. Um, most valuable skill you've applied in your career? Ooh, um, using social engineering effectively to convince folks that the human factor matters in cybersecurity. Well, we're going to dive more into that later. Um, last question. What's the most fun part of your work in cyber? Okay, so I'm an educator um, and that's going to be the best part of my work day that I get to train the next generation cybersecurity workforce. Uh, the students that I engage with, um, both in my class and competitions, are just so creative and hardworking. So I'm always in awe. And that's that's the best part. Most fun for me. We have we have so much to dive into today, um, but I actually want to talk about um, how you got into cyber and your background first. Because I remember we talked a while back, you told me how your first job out of college within the first year or so you all experienced a breach. Tell us how that event um, affected you. 
Yeah. So my first degree was actually in computer science. And this was way back when cybersecurity wasn't even a topic. So you all know how old I am now. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so I started my first job uh, as a software engineer. And the company I worked for did experience a breach. Um, And this got me thinking, you know, well, who's behind this? Uh, How did they come together? What's going on at their end, right? And I realized that computer science couldn't give me those types of answers because these were not computer science-y questions, right? They were sociological in nature. And so while I could code and I was good at it, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I wasn't satisfied and realized computer science wasn't going to give me that training that I I was you know, lacking. So yeah, so I quit my job. <laughs> um, and I went to study uh, criminology. And uh, this domain has really helped me understand how criminals in general um, can organize. Uh, how do they engage in divisions of labor? How do they operate? How do they adapt to disruptions or changing times? And you know, this kind of skill set and training is something that I'm always still trying to marry to my computer science training. And it is not easy to do. It's interesting because the research you do basically focuses on the behavior of cyber adversaries, i.e. the bad guys. (laughs) How do you do this type of research? How do you understand more about the adversary? You know, you mentioned they're essentially inner workings, right? Like how they operate as a business. So how do you do that sort of research? There's a couple of ways you can do it. So, you know, obviously watching a cybercrime, real crime unfold is very hard. And then as a researcher, um, you know, how do you get that approved by your ethics board, right? So it becomes a little <laughs> tricky. So there's a couple of ways you can do this. Uh, sometimes you look at reports that have been written by um, companies that do that kind of work that can, you know, aren't bound necessarily by the same rules and regulations that I am. And then you take that work and you apply your respective disciplinary lens, right? Your theoretical lens. So organized crime sort of lenses to look at, okay, well, how are they organizing? How are they operating? All those types of things. That's one way to do it. Another way is you use an event um, that is accessible as a proxy for the event that cannot be observed. You can go out to a lot of red teaming exercises. Idaho National Labs, for instance, has a a cyber physical system on their site, and you can go and engage in a red-blue exercise over there. So I went as an observer, and I observed the red team for the whole day, right? Two days, three days, that they were engaging in hack-based activities. So they are breaking into systems, they're moving around into into your systems, right? Um, But in that case, it was interesting because these folks who were in the red team were all just randomly put together, right? So they didn't necessarily know each other ahead of time. Yeah. So how good of a proxy is it, right? But there are other events as well. Michigan Cyber Range, for instance, I went out there and I observed the red teams. So there, these folks uh, had been working together for 5, 10, 15 years. So those types of events can serve as proxies as well. So again, is it necessarily representative of reality? No, but it gets you pretty close to at least understanding how can these dynamics work in real time. So you're the director 
of the Care Lab Cyber in Application Research and Education. Is there a reason it's called CARE? What do you care about? I thought this was an interesting little acronym. It is. And one of the biggest sort of pushbacks that we get in liberal arts is, well, what value, like application value, does your work have? It's always nice to write in theory or publish papers or whatever, but what impact, right, does it have? And so started thinking about that, you know, yes, we do research, which is the R, right? But where are we sitting on the A and the E, which is the application and education? So with education, I, that's another space that I feel like liberal arts is behind its computer science counterparts, especially for looking at experiential learning. I look at my computer science colleagues, for instance, they have really hands-on learning classes through, let's say, digital forensics or, yeah. you know, pen testing, and they even have competitions designed around it. What are we doing in liberal arts, right? And I had been teaching the same way that I had been taught. So these methods are clearly old, right? Yeah. It's not the modern thing that we're, yeah, social engineering is not exactly something that people were even teaching or learning about necessarily in depth. Yeah. And so, you know, we had been go research a topic, write a paper, and then present right at the end of the semester. And I'm not saying those are not important skills. That's a very important skill to have is research and writing and communicating. But how's that going to really be helpful? Um, to my student who might be considering a career in cyber, right? When I was looking at the different types of, we talked a little bit, you know, about adversarial behavior. Here's another one that, you know, is completely uh, leveraging the human uh, behavior and psychology. And this is definitely a liberal arts uh, focused area, right? Uh, how do humans think? How do people think? How do they behave? And so I started designing these projects in my classroom, right, in 2017, and then, you know, realized that it's time to scale this up. Uh, and that's how we started getting into our competitions. But that's sort of the education side of things of how do you change the way you teach, right? And in a way, we aren't necessarily, when I was doing my PhD, the emphasis was on research. It's not on how do you teach. So you have to kind of go figure that out on your own. And that is a very hard thing to do, right? How do you design a shoulder surfing class project when you have no background, um, you know, that you can build from? How do you, how do you know what you want to capture? How do you design a rubric? Uh, how are you going to grade? How, do you just grade success? Do you grade failure, right? Like, what do you, how do you measure these things? So it was a very, um, hard thing to do and also baking ethics into cybersecurity education is also very important. So how do you how do you you know uh, expose students to those types of things? So that's the E in care and then the A, right? Application. And we've been doing a couple of things in, in that space. So um, we maintain a world famous uh, critical infrastructure ransomware data set. It's called the CIRA, Critical Infrastructure Ransomware Attack uh, data set, and it's available for free for download. And we uh, have received countless requests, not just from educators and students, because that's initially the group that I wanted to 
uh, you know, make sure that this data was available to because it's so hard <laughs> to get data, right? Um, and we, uh, at least in our uh, setting, uh, we can't afford uh, the paywall, for instance, right? Like if I wanted to access data set, I don't have thousands of dollars to pay. My students don't have that. Um, or, you know, signing off on MOUs or NDAs, which means I can't use data in a certain way. So we wanted to bypass all of that. And interestingly, yes, uh, students and educators have been using the data set, but we have industry, government, nonprofit come to us for data, which I think is really funny. Uh, whereas if it were the other way, I'd have to pay an arm and a leg. <laughs> so that's one of the application values of a product that was developed by, you know, liberal arts, right? That yeah, that's is great. Having, uh, a huge uh, impact on the community. Something else that we are doing is we're taking our social engineering work and packaging it as cyber hygiene. And now we are working with nonprofits in North Philadelphia. So we work with, you know, three of the most vulnerable segments of society, uh, our youth, uh, the elderly, and previously incarcerated individuals, right? Mm -hmm. So they're coming back to society 10, 15, 20 years, and we know how quickly technology changes. Well, like when they went in, the, the smartphone wasn't... Yeah. Ubiquitous, essentially. All of a sudden, you have one of these devices. So you're crazy. Use it. But how do you also protect yourself when you're using it? Right. So, this is the kind of application value. So, we do cybersecurity days, or we'll go to, you know, um, uh, schools or nonprofits and talk about cyber hygiene. So, these types of things, I think, have a lot of application value. And that's, and that's why we came up with the name care, right? We address all three of those. And I think the larger messaging behind that is taking care of each other, right? And helping each other get there in terms of cyber hygiene and cybersecurity. So that's, that's the reasoning behind the name. And that kind of brings me to my next question, because essentially, what we're teaching as well is how to understand how the adversary is going to socially engineer you through your device. So what types of things do you teach or can you give some examples of like how we can easily be engineered or and in a way I think of it as like hacking humans, you know, like you yourself are being hacked. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the class projects that we do shoulder surfing. And I'm assuming, you know, you know what it is and your um, your audience will know what it is. But this is basically me uh, taking my train to work in the morning and everyone has their cell phones out and they're surfing along. And I'm just going to go, what are you reading? What are you reading? Right. And it's not necessarily a malicious thing. I'm just curious. I want to know what you're reading uh, and what's going on. And so these are some of the, and it's just, you know, we well, I'm not going to make the assumption we've all done it, but I do. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you see some people's font is like really big and I'm like, wow, I can read that from six feet away, you know? That's yeah. Like yeah. And you can reveal a lot about yourself, right? Um, and, and it's a 30 minute commute. That gives me lots of times to learn about you and what's going on in your life today and maybe next week and all that good stuff. So but these are some, you know, we that was taken into um, a class project. And so students have to 
work in teams and for two weeks, they have to target each other, right? And of course, then again, you bake ethics into it, of course, uh, which is if it's sensitive information, that's off limits, right? So if it's your bank that you're you know, connected to or you're looking at your grades or your health information, but if you're just surfing along, that's fair game. And then once you target each other for two weeks, during that time, you're not allowed to disclose that you were successfully targeted. But at the end of the two weeks, mm. we have a debrief session. That's when all the teams present their findings. And then you should just see the environment in the class. Or students like, when did you get that picture of me? I, I didn't know you were behind me doing that, right? And this kind of awareness you can't get through reading about something. No, right? totally. You actually have to do it. But that's just one example, right, of, of, of a course project. So I do want to pause here and, and say that when I was developing this, um, the projects had to be vetted by our ethics board, right? So it was this project and a couple of other ones. And the ethics board called me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing in your class? And um, I'm glad that they did that, right? Because this is social engineering, teaching social engineering is very tricky because, and, and it's not just my ethics board, but in general, I have received this concern or criticism, you know, depending on how you look at it. How can you teach your students to deceive others? Yes. Um, isn't that wrong? Isn't that unethical? And I'm so glad that we have this conversation, right? Because why is it that we have pen testing competitions that encourage students celebrate, right? Celebrate yeah. them for breaking into systems. And I think it's because it's a system, not a human, exactly what you said, because here you're hacking a human. Yeah, you're hacking a and person. It's different. It's personal, right? But we still teach students to break into systems. And I think we need to talk about this because not talking about it, not teaching it is far worse because our adversaries are already doing it. And yes, you were learning about deception, but there's also the phrase, the best defense is a good offense. So if you understand how your adversary thinks, how they behave, how they act, you're going to be a better designer. You're going to be a better defender, right? So that is at the heart of it. And baked into that is ethics. Knowing that what you're learning should be used for good, right? It's just like using a hammer. It's a tool, right? You can use it to put a nail up on the wall and hang a beautiful picture frame that's going to give everybody joy. Or you can use it to damage property or even humans, right? So how are you going to use this hammer? That doesn't mean we stop using hammers. Up next, we'll take an exclusive peek into Dr. Reggie's involvement with her summer social engineering competition set to launch again in 2024. While we eagerly await the competition, our cyber challenges hosted on MetaCTF's platform continue to evolve with fresh updates every two weeks. And the best part is they're open for everyone to dive into. To join in on the excitement, simply click the links below. So let's go back to um, more examples, because I know you've done research on social engineering. You do education on that. What other examples can you give of like, you know, my students were able to do this and they were able to, you know, uh, let's learn from the mistakes of others here. <laughs> 
So students in the competition, again, hats off to them. They are ridiculously creative. And I remember the first year um, when they had to do a pen test of of the care lab, right? That was the the Mm. premise of the competition. They had to go do uh, OSINT on me and my grad students, right? The employees. The amount of information that they were able to dig up and some of them came up with really clever pretexts, right? Um, so they knew, for instance, that we are big in the education space, um, that we care about working with nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So one team, I remember, designed a uh, pretext where they were a Girl Scouts team and they were trying to get a cybersecurity badge. and that is totally something that we as a lab would do we'd be like yes we want to help girl scouts we want to help them you know get their badge and then when it was you know um there was a vish component embedded into this so they had to engage with us on the phone uh we pushed back right we would say well what kind of badge is it can you give me more information about it and they had the link ready to the website and they told, you know, so they were able to adapt like this. Wow. Um, so that to me, dem- and this was a high school team. What? Yep. This was a high school <laughs> team. And they, they really knocked it out. And it was, it was amazing. Um, so they came up with a solid, and we asked them, why did you design this pretense? They said exactly those things. They said, we know you care about education. We know you work with nonprofits. We know you are about diversity and you want to have more women in cyber. So for all of those three types of things, and plus we're, uh, you know, a Girl Scout team, so we're younger, so we're going to tug at your heartstrings, right? They, they figured it out, right? And so this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. They were very, they were devilishly good. <laughs> <laughs> And that, you know, it gives me hope, right? Because I'm like, all right, this is the next generation. They get it. They get it. So that made me very happy, I think, to to see this kind of creativity, this kind of thought, this ability to adapt when I pushed for more information. That's what makes a great social engineer. So they rocked it. Part of me, when I hear about that and I see that, like, yes, the next generation is so creative. I don't I don't know if it's necessarily because they grew up with the technology or they're um, some people are more aware. Um, It's unclear which is which. But what is clear to me is that a lot of people are still not aware, you know, that social engineering is a thing. They should know to ask and to push back and to ask for more information. Are you in a way concerned that more of this education isn't being taught? so that people are aware of ways to defend against these tactics? That's a great question, right? Because every time we talk about social engineering, we're always looking at it from an attack perspective. Mm. How do you use social engineering to defend? And this is this is why, you know, that phrase again, right? The best defense is a good offense. Well, if you know that this is how they're going to get you, how could you press on? Or how could you keep asking those questions? Or, you know, maybe not giving the answer at this point, right? Giving them the keys to the kingdom, but pausing, taking a break, uh, saying, hey, you know, let me go talk to my boss or, you know, whoever it might be, and then let me get back to you. So those types of things, just pausing, reflecting, thinking, 
Um, and this gets back to, I think, a broader security culture. So I'm sure right, growing up, you knew about things like stranger danger, like your family would have told you about this, right? So are we having those types of conversations today when it comes to cybersecurity, basic cyber hygiene right. in the house? And, and I do this with my own kid at home, right? I will, we will go out somewhere, um, let's say grocery shopping, and we walk out of there and I'm like, okay, you were in that store for 15, 20 minutes. Tell me what you saw. So basically I'm practicing her, you know, getting her to practice her OSINT types of abilities, right? Her observation skills, right? Things like entry points, exit points, security measures, these types of things, can you bake that into, can you make it fun? Can you make it interactive? Can you make it a part of everyday conversations? It's gotten to a point now where we were on vacation and we were in the elevator with, you know, some other folks that were also at this destination. And I asked her a question and she gave a very brief reply. And when we stepped out of the elevator, I'm like, well, what was up with that reply? And she's like, I didn't want to share too much information in the elevator with people that I don't know. And I was like, all right, fair enough. Now, I didn't even think about it, but it was so ingrained mm. into you know her mind that she said, no, I can still give you this answer a little bit later. So these kinds of things, right? Like even posting information, how much of it are you posting? Where are you posting? Because that is all going to be used as someone's OSINT later right? If they, if they wanted to come and target you. So I think these types of things, having those conversations, having a questioning culture um, where it's okay to ask questions when someone comes in and says, Hey, I'm here to fix X, Y, and Z. Well, are you really right? Um, and, and I think we feel uncomfortable asking those questions, right? Because we want to be nice. We want to be helpful. We don't want to make someone feel bad or or add to their work day, you know, or inconvenience them, inconvenience them. And I think uh, getting over that personal, uh, you know, sort of hiccup, if you will, and being like, no, it's okay to do this. And you don't have to ask rudely, you can still be nice and ask if you do mess up. And for instance, I see this with romance scams, where social engineering is huge. So when someone falls for a scam, they're often embarrassed to talk about it, right? So are we creating even safe spaces for victims of social engineering, right? To come and share their story. So it's an overall, I think, cultural mindset as well as how do you talk about it, not just in the classroom, but at home? How do we change the way we train people? If someone does, you know, unfortunately become a victim, how do we talk to them with respect and dignity so that, you know, it's not something that's embarrassing them, but rather becomes a teachable moment, right? And we can move on from there together. So I think those types of things really need to happen. And I'm talking about at a larger sort of societal, uh, you know, level. I agree with that. Actually, one of the reasons that I'm even here and decided to come into cyber was because I heard the story from a victim. She was fished and was sharing, you know, how that happened. And I could totally see how you would not want to share that information. You know, who, what company wants to employ somebody who's clicked on the link and, you know, 
basically opened up their company and financials to the dogs, you know. Right, but also, you know, piggybacking off of that, how are we offering training? Is it just that online quiz or, you know, if you clicked on this, you get a little message on your screen that says, oh, you know, you fell for this and da, 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 and here's more material for you to read. And then you do that in another six months or a year. Is that the right way to offer training? Number one. Number two, how effective is it? And, you know, how often do we need to do these types of trainings? Right. Because one of the biggest um, phrases that I've heard that I absolutely am not a fan of is the human is the weakest link. Mm. And no, I don't think that is the case. Right. I think to err is human. We all make mistakes. There was a social engineering scam a couple of years ago, actually, where cybersecurity professionals fell for it. So everyone is susceptible to this. It's just what is your pretext? What is the script? There's something for everyone, right? So to say that the human is the weakest link is, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think the training is the weakest link. I think we need to change, you know, the culture behind that. So the training is a problem. Um, The culture, how are we talking about it? How are we, uh, you know, baking that into everyday conversation? What happens when someone does mess up? Are we, you know, what are the lessons learned for that person? But also, you know, the company or the family or wider society. So I think those types of things, uh, to me, are are uh, more important. Yeah, I think if you just look at it as a a one person sort of issue, yeah, then you don't ever fix the entire problem because you're like, oh well, we just need to fix this one person. It's individual. You need to fix that, you know, on your own then yeah, you never change a culture. You don't change the overall behavior. So yeah, you're still susceptible in many ways, for sure. Um, So you started out in a technical career. It was kind of cyber adjacent, but how are non-technical people able to become a part of of cybersecurity? I'm going to start, I guess, answering this question by saying, I think we need diversity in thought in cyber um, because if you bring in different perspectives, you're going to be able to tackle cybercrime more effectively. Uh, we're currently clearly not doing a good job. Clearly, we're, we're behind. Um, and I think uh, different disciplines bring different strengths to the table. One of the most important things that I want to say is it's not about conversion. And this has happened, I'm not going to name you know organizations, but this has happened with well-known organizations that I've spoken with. Where they're like, oh, yeah, no, we'll take your social scientists and then we'll put them through a CS boot camp and then they'll get coding and then they'll get certifications and then boom, we've got a cybersecurity person. And I said, well, no, what you're doing is you're converting that person into more of the same that you already have, as opposed to leveraging their skill sets and valuing them for their disciplinary expertise. I'm not saying you don't need to know anything about it. Of course you do. You need to understand the concepts, the language at the higher sort of abstract level to be Mm -hmm. able to get an overall picture of it and understand how to study it. But why does everyone have to be molded into that same typeset, right? Uh, Why can't we have a psychologist who can use their skill set Um, or a criminologist like me and bring them in for things like threat intelligence. When we are studying those types of things anyways, I mean, we do that for other fields like terrorism, for organized crime, right? Hate crimes, white collar crime, corporate crime. 
we don't have to, you know, convert, right, or become economists to understand financial crimes. So why is this so much different, right? It's not. And so so I think there's a lot of, of ways that other domains can contribute. One of the things that I struggle with, and, you know, for your audience, help me as an educator uh, with this whole workforce pipeline. What types of internships and jobs are available for students outside of computer science, right, or engineering? How are they worded? How do we find them? Um, How are they marketed? How are these students, right, liberal arts students in my case, how are they being recruited? Are they getting similar salaries to their technical counterparts? And if they're not, why aren't they? And what does that, you know, what kind of message are we sending um, if they're not getting the same kinds of salaries? So, you know, we need to think about this uh, because we already know about the workforce shortage gap. And if we have to get more of the next generation workers into that pipeline, these kinds of issues need to be looked at. I think we broader, right, employers in general, again, industry, government, nonprofit, whoever it might be, uh, we need to be more thoughtful about these types of issues because there's so much more that we can do. So you and literally, I think anyone that I've heard speak at a cyber conference have said uh, the following phrase, our adversaries aren't homogenous, so we shouldn't be either. Can you explain what that means and like why that's so important? When people think of diversity in the workforce, this is why it's so important to have diversity. And diversity can mean many different things, right? It could be gender, your orientation, your religion, your race, your culture, your ethnicity. Um, All of these things matter because our adversaries come from all over the world. So when you have on your team people who either are from there or have roots that go back to these different parts of the world, growing up, you know, they're going to know the language. They might know the culture. They might know you know, certain ways of thinking or priorities, right? What's important in that culture versus this culture? Um, Why might they be doing what they're doing? You know, what's going on in those countries right now? How is it affecting them? And, you know, so I think, you know, if you understand that more, you are better prepared to, again, design better systems and defend them more effectively because you again, that that best defense is a good offense. You understand how your adversary thinks and diversity is so, so important, right? So it's no longer, it's not, it's, and it, I hope it was never about that, but it's not about checking boxes like, oh, we hired someone who meets XYZ criteria. It should be looking way beyond that. Oh, we need someone like that for these reasons. And that's why you want to have different teams. Same thing with your background, right? Your your educational, your training background, having a psychologist there, having a language major there, having an uh, anthropologist on your team, right? Why and how are these important? Again, we can come with different theoretical lenses. We can come with different ways of studying something, right? I might be like, hey, you know, well, uh, this is how this other organized crime group that I was researching adapted when they experienced this. What would that look like in this space? Let's work together and figure that out. Bringing in that way of thinking 
to tackle a problem might give you new types of solutions, more holistic types of solutions that can be more effective. Dr. Baye, it was so awesome to have you on Cyber Chats. Um, we can't wait to hear more from you. And uh, we'll have links to the competitions that you create at Temple um, in the show notes. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at NCF Cyber and sign up for updates on our website to get news about when episodes drop, when challenges open and close, and submit your original questions for our guests. What are you waiting for? Visit CryptoLogicFoundation.org forward slash podcast. Subscribe to Cyber Chats on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Thank you to our sponsor, the Chilton Foundation, and our challenges sponsor, MetaCTF. This is a production of the National Cryptologic Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization.